Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, Cinco de Mayo, 2017. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Doug, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. 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 So, it is the infamous Cinco de Mayo today. Uh, I didn't are, realize that. Yeah. <laughs> our topic actually may be kind of appropriate. Uh, we're going to be talking about the amygdala hijack, avoiding the amygdala hijack specifically. So um, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, uh, we're going to talk about the amygdala, uh, which is uh, two almond-shaped clusters located in the limbic ring in the brain. Um, the amygdala is referred to uh, in neuroscience as the emotional sentinel. Uh, so it's the specialist in emotional matters uh, and where passion comes from. So we want to talk about that today and how that can get hijacked and you can have these momentary lapses of reason where you might freak out, you know, or blow up or have a panic attack or things like that and kind of techniques that you can use to avoid that. So mm -hmm. uh, we have a clip, uh, I guess, that it would be good to, to start with uh, Daniel Goleman, uh, correct? Yes, he mm -hmm. is the author of a book called Emotional Intelligence, excellent read. So we'll go to that clip, and he gives a good synopsis of the amygdala hijack in neuroscience terms. There's one structure in the midbrain that's called the amygdala, which is the brain's sentinel, it has a privileged position in perception. Everything we see in every moment goes mostly to the sensory cortex, but a small part of it goes to the amygdala. Not to other structures, but to the amygdala, which scans it to see, is this a threat? That's a constant question in evolution. Is this a threat? Or more generally, uh, the amygdala has presumably been the structure that answers the one critical question for survival. Do I eat it or does it eat me? This is not a question you want to go Google. Because in evolution, if you do, it just ate you. And so you didn't pass on this design of brain to us. The amygdala is a hair trigger. In other words, it would rather be safe than sorry. It gets a very fuzzy picture of what's going on, but if it thinks it has a match, it has the ability to trigger what's called the HPA axis, the hypothalamic thalamic pituitary adrenal axis. This, is, this creates a rush of stress hormones. It changes the entire uh, way the brain prioritizes information. Once this axis has been triggered, it means that, for example, if the emotion is fear, everything relevant to what's scaring us is what preoccupies attention. It captures attention. It changes the hierarchy within memory so that we remember and think about only what pertains to the thing that's scaring us at the moment. And it, uh, it does all the other things of the classic stress response. It takes, uh, it sends uh, energy to the limb so we can run or fight and flee or freeze, whatever. So it's the classic uh, uh, fight, flight, freeze trigger. The problem is that the amygdala functions today the way it always has. And we don't operate in a world now that has actual physical threats. We, have, we operate in a complex symbolic reality where what we face are complex symbolic threats. 
he's not treating me fairly. She's dissing me. (laughs) Whatever it may be. These threats today trigger the HPA axis, the amygdala. And so when we are caught in the grip of a distressing emotion, it means that uh, attention narrows and fixates, and we get into a state which is suboptimal for most of life uh, in ways I'll unpack for you. Now, one of the things that the amygdala does is create, when it really thinks something's urgent, create what's called an amygdala hijack, the signs of which are three. You have a very strong emotional response. It's very sudden and intense. And you do something or say something or send an email (laughs) that when the dust settles, you really regret. Right? That is a sign of an amygdala hijack. And it happens to really intelligent people because we get really dumb when the amygdala takes us over. Because we're being run by our fears and our anger, by emotional repertoires that were learned unconsciously in childhood. We become very childlike. Now, the good news is when we have an impulse from the amygdala, that goes up to an area... Uh, just behind the forehead, which is the prefrontal cortex. How did that happen? Did you do that? (laughs) It's okay. No problem. Sorry. He's not the trouble. You know the guy. (laughs) So the, the prefrontal cortex is very important. It's the brain's executive center. The PFC draws together information from all over the brain. So when you're having amygdala hijack, like this guy's not treating me right, I'm, I'm so pissed off I could slug him. I'm sure it never happens here, but just hypothetically if you <laughs> ever did. That impulse goes up to the, the executive center and it scans all other incoming information. It kind of Googles the brain very quickly. And it tells... and it comes up with that crucial fact you need to know now, like, oh, but this is your boss. <laughs> okay. oh. well, so I'm not going to slug him. I'm going to smile and change the subject. And that is exactly the difference between cortical, purely cortical abilities, which operate solely in the top of the brain, the neocortex, that's where the IQ resides, and emotional intelligence abilities, which integrate the executive center and the emotional centers, because it's not just the amygdala, it's an extended uh, network through the hippocampus and other elements. The amygdala is very widely connected throughout the brain. So when I talk about emotional intelligence, at the neural level, I'm talking about this cortical, neocortical, actually prefrontal, subcortical integration of abilities. Well, yes. You know, that was a lot of information to take in initially. Yeah. And just for some background for our listeners, that was a talk that Daniel gave at Google. Mm. The evil empire. (laughs) (laughs) Inspiring positive workplace interactions. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you guys think? 
experience have you ever experienced the amygdala hijack? I don't think 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 anybody on the planet hasn't experienced the amygdala hijack (laughs) at some point. Yeah, where your suddenly emotion just just takes over. I mean, I think anybody can like you know recall experiences of uh, you know not necessarily road rage, but I think that's a good example of it. Or saying something in the heat of the moment when later realizing that was a really stupid thing to say. Yes. Well, and it's not just related to anger, too, right? I mean, it's um, it's it's fear also, but it, uh, a bunch of uh, another wide range of emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I don't. Uh, I think I might have like raged out twice in my life that I can think of, <laughs> and I'm not. Mm, I'm not trying yeah. to be like you know, uh, pat myself on the back or anything. I just don't go to that place, but I go to other places which are more like you know, anxiety and self-loathing and stuff like that. And I think mm-hmm. that that's related to the amygdala as well. I mean, um, yeah. you know, the experience of having a panic attack where you just kind of lose control of your body and mm-hmm. your mind is freaking out. And then you really have to bring yourself back from that. That feels like a hijack. Mm-hmm. I think that it is too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily not, you know, it is the, the sympathetic nervous system that's activated, right? So it's the, the, you know, the, the famous flight fight or flight, um, reaction. So I don't think everybody explodes in rage uh, when they they're experiencing this uh, amygdala hijack. I think for sure there's there's some people who maybe w- are much more internal about it and and uh, yeah, like you say, like high anxiety, panic attacks, uh, self loathing, all those sorts of things can can definitely be uh, a reaction of the amygdala. Yeah, and it's all happening because uh, there's there's a perceived threat. It's like uh, Goldman was saying there. It's like uh, you know. The, the brain structure was basically um, created or evolved, however you want to look at it, was uh, came about because we needed this kind of thing to quickly, like really quickly assess whether or not something is a threat. So right. I think in those, those situations where something is perceived to be a threat, um, that just takes over. Yeah, like how he said, is it going to, do I eat it or is it going to eat me? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that has a lot to do with us being around. I mean, you know, if, if you, you know, put yourself up against like a mountain lion, you know, huh. if you didn't, have, you know, if you didn't have the ability to twitch and at least like turn and stab or something when it jumped at you, there there would be no humans. Right. We would all been take, taken out by all the apex predators. But it even happens to some people when they see, say, a mouse mm, or a spider. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, it really does come down to perception, right? Like it's a perceived threat. So for some reason, you know, like all kinds of people have these weird phobias where it it doesn't really make a lot of logical sense. But like, you know, I don't know if I should say this on the air, but my sister is absolutely terrified of spiders, like absolutely terrified of spiders. And, uh, you know, it's not logical or anything. There's no, there's no logic to it. It's like this tiny thing. Uh, I'm from Canada and there's there's no poisonous spiders in Canada like it doesn't there's, there's no real threat there but yeah. you know she's just something happened probably when she was young or something like that that kind of traumatized her and now she constantly perceives these things as threats so it just it just takes over and she just she just loses it well it's interesting too how how you have that initial fear of something 
And like he was describing, and then all of a sudden your prefrontal cortex has an opportunity to kind of assess the situation. So what you mm-hmm. may have thought was a spider or even a snake in the grass, and then you take a second look and it's just the garden hose or it's just a piece of lint mm-hmm. on the floor. But that mm-hmm. initial stage of the racing heart rate, the you know rapid breathing, the stress cortisol release in your body, and then... All of a sudden, the brain is like, wait, it's not a real threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's yeah, a, that's no, always I, a good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's nothing to panic about. Okay, good. <laughs> well, there's an interesting uh, correlation there, too, where you can get, I feel like you can have those two things at the same time, where you can realize that it's nothing to panic about, but you're still panicking. Mm. And then you feel mm. dumb, and you're like, you know, why am I doing this? Um, <clears throat> that feels to me like part of the process of coming out about it or coming out mm-hmm. of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it occurred to me that like, so this process and the function of the amygdala is essentially supposed to preserve our life, right? That's, mm-hmm. it's one of our basic survival instincts. It's funny that I think now it's being applied to uh, kind of inane things in our day-to-day life. Like as, mm-hmm. a, as an example, if you lose your keys and you're late for a meeting, and you're trying to find your keys and you can't find them and you're like, I, I, I can't, you know, then you start yeah. freaking out. <laughs> and there's like a function of your brain that's supposed to preserve your very life that you're applying to a situation that is essentially meaningless. Yeah. Well, yeah, I it, think, um, sorry, Doug, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I think with our modern lifestyle, um, and the the way that we kind of have to go to our jobs 24/7 you know we we have to pay our bills and we have all of these stresses placed on us in modern life um i think there is some degree of um threat to our survival in 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 a weird kind of way um in that we perceive that okay we're late for work um therefore we could essentially lose our job and we can no longer put food on the table and i guess to some extent that is a threat to our survival um and so it may seem relatively inane but i guess um because we are all struggling to survive in the world i guess these these small things may represent something a little bit more larger if that makes any sense that makes total mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, it, it cascades down into all the all the things that we've integrated with our our livelihoods. So yeah, when you're when you're thinking about not making your job, then that goes into not paying your bills and then losing your house or not having food. But well, I think it's not even it's not even necessarily that you know you have that kind of chain of 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 thinking um, because I, I was reading in one of the articles we were looking at before the show. Unfortunately, I don't remember which one, but they were saying that it's even um, like in this day and age, we can have amygdala hijacks um, when there's a threat to the ego. So even something that that kind of um, threatens your social status or your your how you're perceived, how you perceive yourself, how others perceive you, those sorts of things can can also like even like somebody criticizing your work in some way or something like that, that can cause an amygdala hijack. So it's sure. it's it's kind of like it really has stretched beyond just the pure survival instinct um, to something kind of much greater. And I mean, yeah. you know, Goldman was saying we live in a symbolic reality and it's, it's not, it, it, we don't come across these day, these, these threats to our survival daily. Most people don't anyway. So yeah. I think uh, it's kind of like, you know, how do we shut this thing off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we don't want to, right? 
We don't, we don't want to shut no. it off. Right? We want to know no. how to deal with it. Yeah. Or like how to, how to recognize it. Cause I mean, you should, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, if, if a, if a pack of wolves is sneaking up on you, you should be tense and stressed out and anxious, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. But then learning how to like channel it and, and handle it. Yeah. Well, also too, it, you know, speaking from experience, something when you read about what's happening in the world and the signs of the times and, and you have this background information about all these things going on in the world and say you get pulled over by a police officer, I personally mm. go through that, you know, oh my gosh, yeah. what's going to happen? Yeah. And I get that rush of adrenaline and that nervous feeling and and then, you know, you get, what, 2.5 seconds till the officer walks up to your window and asks you and you oh, I have my my registration and my ID and all these things. And, and then you're okay. But it's like that heightened intensity knowing <laughs> about the environment out there in the world today. That yeah, that's, sense. it's definitely contextual. Cause I mean, ideally, right. If you see a cop, you should be like, Oh, Hey, my protector and savior. It's nice <laughs> to see you. you know, thank you. For yeah. to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> And for me, I have never had a bad experience with a police officer. So it doesn't make sense that I would go into that amygdala hijack fear response. But mm-hmm. maybe it's just yeah. all the background information of what could go wrong. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's like the, uh, the genetic intelligence that we've talked about in the past where data is passed down. You know, I think the, the environment creates these fears that are essentially irrational, you know, except obviously in certain cases. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for, for some people, I mean, I guess I'll just say it like for African-American people in the metro areas being pulled over by a police officer is not, you know, like I understand why that's going to trigger a stress response Yeah, because of the the context. Yeah. But also how you respond in that moment too, when the police officer, I remember one time I got a speeding ticket and at the end I told him, thank you. And he walked away, and yeah. I thought to myself, why did I just thank him for giving me a speaking <laughs> ticket? <laughs> but it was like, you know, be respectful, you know, no confrontation. Let's just move on with oh, our that, day. <laughs> that to- Yeah, that totally gets me. I, it's one of my, I mean, you and we all have these kind of stupid personal ego things. One of mine is occasionally I'll catch myself thinking of myself as like this, you know, I'm a, I'm a political dissident, you know, or, or like all of these amped up views about myself. And then I realized that, yeah, every time I talk to a police officer or like a TSA officer, I'm like, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Very much. Have <laughs> <there,"> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's different yeah. when the, the, the threat is actually facing you. Yeah. <laughs> all our self-importance just goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the ego that... thing I think is re- yeah, go oh, on, go, Jonathan. Go oh, I was oh, just going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that moment, like he talked about, um, you know, with the Google employees where you get really mad, like Doug said, you know, somebody's criticizing your work and then you send off that email and then you have that, oh, why did I do that? And you have to deal with the backlash <laughs> of yeah. Of reacting in that moment and because your ego is bruised or your feelings are hurt or someone dissed you. I like how he said that, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think everybody can relate to that too, where, um, <clears throat> say, 
you're in a situation where, and this is totally hypothetical, uh, but it's probably, I imagine it's happened to some people. Um, you're trying to explain how to do something that you know that you know how to do to somebody else and you know that they don't know how to do it and then they correct mm-hmm. you and you're like, oh, you know, and you feel that momentary <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, I think that's an ego hit where you're sure you, in that situation, you might know more than that other person, but it's, I think it's your ego that bristles. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it, it kind of like comes up against all the narratives we tell ourselves about who we are and what we know and what we're capable of. And, and whenever that gets threatened, I guess the, like the amygdala is actually re- like reacting to that. So you're having, you know, it's kind of ridiculous that you're like, you know, this, this person's showing me up, gives me the same reaction as there's a saber toothed tiger in the bushes ready to pounce on me. But apparently that's what happens. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's interesting that, uh, the rationality, you know, comes out of it because you have to, uh, kick in that instinctual mind in order to, you know, have the, the life preserving results of that. But it, what I'm, curious about is, is that really necessary? Can you actually integrate conscious thinking and the response of the amygdala so that when you're responding to a dangerous situation, you're actually on point, you know, or is it inevitable that instinct kicks in? Like, uh, another example, like say somebody's coming at you with a knife and you happen Mm -hmm. to be trained in hand-to-hand combat. Are you actually Mm -hmm. thinking through that defense or is it just training an instinct, you know? Yeah. I think I in that example, it probably is just training an instinct. I think mm-hmm. that uh, when there actually is a threat to your life and that's been confirmed, you know, it's like what, what Goldman was saying there was that, you know, the amygdala is kind of the, the hair trigger. So right away, it's kind of like threat. And then they go, after that, it goes to the prefrontal frontal cortex, which can kind of assess the other information coming in from other parts of the brain and determine whether or not it actually is a threat. So I'd sure. say in a situation where you got you got a guy coming at you with a knife, it, the amygdala would be like threat, and the prefrontal cortex would be like, oh yeah, threat for sure. And yeah, I think at that point it would probably be if you're trained, you know, your you, hopefully your training would kick in at that point, and you know the the fight or flight um, instinct, like the, the run away instinct. Well, I mean that might actually be quite life preserving in that situation, but uh, um, I think it's it's different when. And I think this kind of speaks to that emotional intelligence that uh, Daniel Goleman is talking about. It's like, do people have the ability to kind of, you know, I guess that the pathway between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex isn't always going to be the same in everybody. So it's whether you have that ability to kind of assess a situation and determine, no, wait, this isn't a threat. I need to react differently, um, you know, and and be able to uh, kind of circumvent that, that fight or flight response. Um, I don't think that's, uh, you know, I think, I think that that does actually take some training in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, uh, and I know that, uh, Goldman is very big on kind of training these things into children. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, before you actually send off that, that heated email or something, do you have the power to kind of take over, like, you know, have your rational mind kind of take over and say, is this really the best course of action? Is there really a threat here? Can I assess this differently? Um, because I think that a, a lot of people are just, are just reacting. That's it. You know, at that point, there is no, um, you know, higher centers kind of taking over and assessing the situation. It's just pure reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, and in that threat scenario you were talking about with the knife and the person coming at you, if you're trained, 
you tend to have that ability to be able to slow everything down. It's almost like time mm. stands still and that training kicks in and then you can proceed. But somebody who may not have that gets stuck in that fight or flight response and they may scream or run away and they lose that control. That makes sense. Yeah, totally. That's what training is for, right? I mean, otherwise, you know, if you, if you get, amygdala hijacked or you start to panic then you just back up against the wall and you start shaking mm-hmm. but the training would then give you the ability to control the situation yeah well one so thing that some, uh, oh go ahead eric i sound like you had something in mind well i was just um before the show doug and i were talking and we were talking about how a lot of the material that we read is about the the fear response of the amygdala and how it's for survival Another kind of fascinating thing is how we act before we even think about it. And um, I'm reading Goldman's book again, Emotional Intelligence, and he talks about a story of a man that's walking down by a waterway, and he sees a woman across the river, and all of a sudden he jumps into the water. And he doesn't realize until he's in the water that there's a two-year-old drowning in the water. The woman said nothing to him. They had no sort of inner reaction. It was almost like before he even knew what was happening, his body reacted and he saves this child. So Mm. was that a fear response or was that empathy? Was that an nonverbal communication happening? I mean, I, I find it fascinating. You read stories about this all the time when it comes to kids and a stranger saving a child's life or... Or another human. I mean, it's just really fascinating stuff how there's no verbal communication, yet the man did what needed to be done to save that child's life. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Well, that makes me think of uh, one of the articles we were looking at. It says the amygdala and fear are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of speak to that point that uh, uh, essentially it says here the amygdala seems to be doing something more subtle. Uh, than just fear response. It's processing events that are related to what a person cares about at the moment. So they also find that the amygdala is triggered when you have an empathetic person who looks at like a picture of somebody suffering or mm-hmm. um, somebody who has an eating disorder and you show them a, a picture of food, they'll have an amygdala response. So it's, you know, I think it's entirely possible in that story that you told that, you know, that was like just pure instinct that the, because we know that the brain is much more powerful than we give it credit for or that we even have like access to in this moment. Um, so it, to me, it seems entirely feasible that all of the senses of a person would sense a child in danger and their system would kick in, but they're not actually consciously thinking about what's going on in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was another article actually that's, that's called the amygdala is associated with charitable, charitable giving and positive social behavior, not just fear. So obviously there's more going on here. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, like the first blink response that you get. That's kind of what the amygdala is, um, uh, related to. And, uh, I think it kind of gets a bad rap because it's just, it, people usually just think of it as this fear, the fear response, like you were saying, like the, the fight or flight, like that kind of thing, like determining threats. But obviously there's a lot more going on, on there. Like in this article, they talk about like even the, the, you know, sometimes you just like you hold a door for somebody. And, you know, you weren't necessarily thinking, oh, I should hold this door for this person or something like that. It just happens, you know, like right out of, oh, I'm going to hold the door open for this person. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that's probably like a similar kind of quick, you know, 
one twelfth of a second or whatever it is response that just happens. Sure. But, uh, do you want to venture into some uncharted waters? Uh, at least in my mind, they're uncharted. <laughs> I wonder about, yeah. uh, if, uh, if psychopaths have an amygdala response or it's different because if, you know, empathetic people have an amygdala response to, like you said, hold the door open, you know, what does mm-hmm. that look like in a, in a psychopath who has no empathetic response? Um, just a curiosity. I or, you know, think, I think, I think that actually there's some form of damage in the amygdala for psychopaths. I'm not, I, I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but I think I remember reading that. Yeah, I'm sure it's not actually uncharted. Like people have probably studied this. Just I don't really know anything about it specifically. Well, in yeah. the book, Goldman does talk about um, if the amygdala is severed from the rest of the brain, and um, what happens is that there's a sh- shrinking ability to gauge the emotional significance of events. Right. So sometimes they call it affective blindness, like it's la- everything lacks emotional weight. So uh, encounters, personal encounters, lose their you know insight, and um, maybe they don't have that emotional memory. But then sure. it makes you think, you know, they're really good mimickers, and could they fake mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm a good question uh sort of along the same lines but it just uh i wanted to address this before it uh faded off this uh one of our chatters had posted uh that the amygdala is damaged when boys are circumcised and mm-hmm. uh there's a link here to uh, this article circumcision permanently alters the brain at circumcision.org uh and they say in here that uh, after this, I believe it's after this procedure, the baby was kept in the machine for several minutes to generate baseline data of the normal metabolic activity in the brain. This was used to compare the data gathered during and after the surgery. Analysis of the MRI data indicated that the surgery subjected the infant to significant trauma. The greatest Mm -hmm. changes occurred in the limbic system concentrating in the amygdala and in the frontal and temporal lobes. Jeez. So that when you're you're an infant uh, in male of course and you get circumcised that uh you know that immediate hit before you're really even uh in the world and 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 functioning properly you just get this spike you know of terror and fight or flight so yeah well i think that can be said yeah i think that can be said too for children that grow up in abusive households whether it's physical emotional or sexual abuse yeah. And he did refer to that. Go on, Elliot. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, did we lose him? Maybe we lost Maybe Elliot. We have, <laughs> we have a delay. Well, it, <clears throat> you're there. It would, um, it would make sense from a, it, is there a lag? Sorry. Yeah, there must be a lag. Yeah. Go ahead, Elliot. Am I, am I lagging a bit? Oh no! No, you're there. <laughs> <laughs> and he's gone. <laughs> yeah, he, he might be reconnecting at he this might point. Be trying to reconnect. Well, the the trauma thing. I mean, that that's you know, 
<laughs> yeah, so it's like a 30-second lag, guys. Sorry. Uh, basically, I was just going to say, from like a survival perspective, um, it's... Uh... <laughs> just keep talking, Elliot. <laughs> yep. You want to yeah. say it. I've... I've dealt with a 30 second lag before. It's not easy to do. It's not yeah, easy to do. <laughs> uh, All right, let's, let's, uh, Elliot, try to reconnect if you can. See if that yeah. helps. The, the trauma thing I think is, is really interesting. Like that it, uh, you know, when you think of like, uh, soldiers okay. with PTSD, um, mm-hmm. Like my, my, a friend of mine, his uncle was in Vietnam and he always had this story when we were younger that when he came back, um, uh, for a while, he, of course he slept in his own room, but they had the door shut at night. And when they would wake him up for breakfast in the morning, they had to poke him with a broomstick or some kind of <laughs> stick and without fail, he would, he would grab the stick and try to stab them. So they would have to like poke him and then back out of the room Jeez. Um, you know, because his PTSD was so charged. And he was like, he yeah. was so ready, fight or flight. So that, that, uh, kind of like a snapshot of what that feels like, that emotion, um, applied to every male that's been circumcised, you know? And it's like, yeah. I know that it's kind of an extreme example, but it is a trauma that sits with you in your brain. And, uh, I think that's why a lot of men have issues with, you know, uh, insecurity. And so then they try to put on like a macho front because we have this trauma that we haven't dealt with. You just never, never realized or thought about the fact that you were mutilated as a infant, mm. you know? Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole nother, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole really. <laughs> well, I mean, it just in general, like just about trauma in general, I, I think it speaks a lot, you know, because, um, I, I think probably all of us have gone through some sort of traumatic experience, like particularly as children, you know, when the, when all these kind of brain structures are still forming, um, you know, they, uh, I think the, the prefrontal cortex doesn't stop forming until you're 20 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, any of these kind of traumatic experiences are going to kind of pre-program you to to have these these um, stress responses um, to to similar stimulus. So I mean, who knows what could have happened? You know, you might have got yelled at by a teacher or something like that when you were in the first grade. And, you know, now any situation that's kind of similar to that, like you, you suddenly have this, this fear of being, uh, chastised or something like that. And, and, you know, anytime anybody's like moderately critical, like suddenly you're having this amygdala hijack because it's, you know, it's not a rational response at all. And uh, it might be quite difficult to, to, to try and like kind of navigate your way through that and, and try and figure out what can be done about it. Yeah. I agree. It, it's pretty fascinating, and if our listeners—I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are kind of read or interested in the in the same things uh, that we are—but if you have never tried uh, delving into like really looking at what goes on in your mind during a situation mm-hmm. like that, and trying to watch for it and training yourself, no, I'm not claiming to be any kind of like you know trained or anything like that. <laughs> I do like to try it. That's about as good as I get. I think. Uh, but basically like observing in the moment, um, and, and separating your, you know, uh, you're observing the observing part of your mind from what's going on and being able to see these different factors. So yes. Okay. I understand this is irrational. I also really feel freaked out at the moment, you know, and distinguishing the emotions where they come from, 
uh, being able to see that at the same time, that's essentially the gist of what we were talking about with, with training for like combat or martial arts or things like that. Uh, but it's really mm-hmm. fascinating. And it's not, I know like to some people it might sound like, Oh, that just sounds boring. I'm just going to think about what I'm doing, you know, but it's actually really <laughs> fascinating when you, when you get into it. Well, I think that's where um, meditation really comes in. Um, sure. I think, you know, <clears throat> right out of the gate, trying to um, remove yourself from the emotional response in a highly tense situation is probably going to be pretty much impossible. But um, yeah. a lot of the, the, the research on, um, on things like emotional intelligence have, has shown that um, that meditation is actually very helpful um, and actually can increase your emotional intelligence. And I think the reason for that is that in meditation, you kind of are separating yourself from your thoughts, from your emotions and just observing and kind of seeing what's going on. And it kind of gives you that ability to kind of step back from things. And then, you know, what people report is that the more that they meditate, the more able they are kind of in their daily life to kind of take this higher perspective, if you want to call it that, you know, to kind of take a step back internally and be able to um, observe what's going on without necessarily getting caught up in the automatic reactions. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, yoga, we talked about yoga on our last show, and I think that that helps as well. Um, there's a, a lot of different things like mindfulness, all those sorts of things are kind of, kind of along the same lines in that you're, you're kind of, uh, improving your ability to kind of separate yourself, remember yourself, um, in more mundane or threatening situations. Yeah. Well, and, uh, areolas too, right? I mean, you don't have to do the full one hour program mm-hmm. every time you need it. You know, it's not like, well, I'm, I'm going to start freaking out. I better sit down and do an hour of ED. <laughs> it's like. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the techniques, you know, the, the, the circular breathing and the belly breathing, that alone, I think is really helpful. Like if you can feel your emotions rising and you're like, I'm either going to get angry or I'm going to panic about something and you just breathe, you know, breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth and stimulate the vagus nerve and it can help you chill out. Um, it's a real thing, but you have mm. to instill that mechanism where you remember to do that. Mm-hmm. Finding that, finding that pause, like one of our chatters said, meditation gives width of choice. So in that moment Mm. you have, you know, somebody screaming at you or you're encountering an intense situation to pause. I always try and count to five before I say anything, you know, one, one hundred, two, one hundred. And then because once it flies out your mouth, you can't take it back, right? (laughs) Or some of the, uh, should we lighten it up a little bit and talk about some of the, the examples of uh, amygdala hijack that everybody knows about, like Zinedine Zidane? Yeah, and if any of our chatters <laughs> want to share or call in, feel free. Sure. Yeah, if, uh, you know, if you're on the, um, the side radio page, you see a red button that says click to call in. If you have a mic on your computer, you can give us a call. But yeah, do tell, so, Jonathan. Oh, just Zidane, that uh, um, I'm sure people, uh, probably European people will recognize this more so than a lot of uh, Americans, but Zinedine Zidane, when he uh, head-butted another soccer player in the chest, and it was a huge thing, it was all over the news. And I forget what, um, hadn't the guy said something insulting to him about his mother? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was something like that. So, yeah, he got, you know, hijacked 
was like, screw you, buddy, you know, and just went into it. Um, mm -hmm. but that's, there's an example of that, you know, like if he were thinking about the repercussions of that, maybe he wouldn't have done it, or maybe it was a totally valid defense of his mother's honor. I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> but what I think really, really kind of threw people off there was that the consequences were, were so great for him to act that way at that moment. Like it was uh, some kind of, it was like a major game. Was it not like, you know, well, he, he basically like, yeah, it was the world. Cup. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and he basically he so he got kicked out of the game, and like that was his mm -hmm. that was his big shot gone. Yeah, we were. Uh, I was playing indoor soccer at the time and hanging out with a bunch of soccer players, and that was like the big thing that everybody was talking about. Was it on? Uh, you know, and then there were all these ethical debates about was it right or not? You know, or should he have controlled himself? And I think that happens with anything. Like, like we had talked about before the show, the um, Mike Tyson and Holyfield. He bit his ear off, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then I, I was thinking like, when we were talking about that. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say like, well, what you said before the show is that I don't know that Mike Tyson is necessarily a model for, uh, calm, for cool, behavior in any behavior. sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that guy, I think is just like 24 seven amygdala hijacked. Totally. Well, he's the best violent person in the world. <laughs> short, short of like, it's a good point. Of like, uh, assassins or things like that that we may not know about. But Mike Tyson is the best person at violence. So yeah, his wow. uh, yeah his amygdala is probably turned on all the time. Who knows? Yeah. It's it must be an interesting thing for like boxers and you know martial artists, MMA, UFC, that kind of thing. Like uh, I wonder if you know they probably have some insight as to how to control that because if you're you know pardon my French, getting your ass kicked, you you know, you would have to have some way to go back and forth between, okay, I'm going to kick in my fight or flight so that I have this energy, but I also need to stay conscious and aware of what's happening. Well, I also I think, think it could probably be used as a tool. Yeah, I also think... You know, like, like somebody could, could separate those things, like have have a, a situation where the, that kind of you know, violence is called for. And, um, you know, I think I think being kind of more... Um, cognizant of these these reactions. I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't necessarily think that just because somebody is good at fighting, that necessarily means that they they have a hair trigger um, sure. as far as like the stress response goes. Like I think, uh, you know, in martial arts, they they train often are training you like they said the best you know the best way to act in a fight is to not fight. So yeah, um, yeah I think I think maybe uh, we kind of have this perception of people who are are violent in their career choice uh, that they'll they'll just be like these rageaholics and I, I i don't think the two necessarily have to go hand in hand sure yeah some of them are teddy bears really at least they seem that way <laughs> when you hear them speak but um so yeah you know the uh i guess talking about like the um the prominent ones i wonder if another do you remember oh, shoot now i'm blanking on his name the politician who did the uh the yeehaw like the scream you know, like he pumped his fist and went, Rah! and it was a big deal. And like, it was all over the news because it was apparently like a stupid, you know, emotional outburst. I can't, Dean? Who was it? A politician? It was a politician, yeah. It was probably just an American oh, I don't thing. remember that. But anyway, uh, yeah, anytime you essentially like lose it, you know, in the public eye, um, unless it's like something that's called for, 
it most likely is that emotional response where you're not thinking about what's happening. Mm. I also wonder too, though, about those situations, interpersonal situations where somebody is threatening you verbally. And I don't mean with physical violence, but maybe with just intense, strong emotions and you have to pause to deal with it. And then you find your words to stand up to them. And, and I'm speaking from personal experience here. You know, your adrenaline is rushing, you're nervous, you have butterflies in your stomach, but you calm and collectively address the situation because you don't want to back down in fear and not say what you need to say. It's like having that righteous anger, but getting your point across mm-hmm. to the point where you're heard that makes sense mm-hmm. instead of screaming at someone in response where they're they're not going to listen but to be able to calmly and collectively share your perspective and be heard sure yeah well that's kind of, and that's i think that's the, the difference between a, a amygdala hijack and um actually having some control over the situation like having the prefrontal cortex kind of kick in and, and and actually determine what the best response is instead of just reacting being nothing but the reaction Mm-hmm. Totally. And that's kind of the pivot point, isn't it? Where, you know, you encounter a reaction or a, a situation in which you're going to react irrationally. Um, you know, for people who are perhaps more meek uh, and less prone to anger, for them, that's a situation to kind of prove themselves by, you know, reasonably standing up to some kind of aggression. And basically, like taking power of the situation where they wouldn't normally. But for somebody who is prone to to outbursts of anger, for them that's a situ a chance to control themselves and kind of bring it down, you know, and not do the mm. outburst. So it seems like that's kind mm-hmm. of like that that point of stress where you lose your control is kind of the pivot point where you could go either way with it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I'm I'm on the side where like I, traditionally uh, I'm I'm not very brash, and so I would like kind of. I would be more inclined to back down, but I have friends who would not, you know, and they'll get up in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just an interesting dichotomy of the different personality types. Yeah. Elliot, are yeah, you there? Yeah, I think it kind of comes to him. Oh. Hello? Hi. Oh, he is there. Cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been here for a while. I was just listening. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I had a really bad lag, but it seems to have gotten better now. Um, Good. So, hey, everyone. Okay. Hi. <laughs> did you do you have anything to add, Elliot? Since you were listening in the background, um, I've I've been really interested this past week in learning about the physiology behind the the, the stress response and how mm. there are certain factors which can determine how one reacts to a specific situation, and along with things like. Um, conditioning and, 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 and early experience, I think mm-hmm. that the state of one's physiology is actually really um, an important factor in how... Oh. Oh. Shoot. Can I have a cut off again? Yeah, you're, you're yeah, there. You Keep going. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. So, no, I was just saying that I think that uh, someone's the state of one's physiology can determine determine how um how well we sort of deal with the amygdala hijack um mm-hmm. and i think that i tend to think now that if someone um is in a state of chronic um illness 
then this predisposes them to things like PT- PTSD and predisposes mm. them to um, a lack of tolerance for any stressor. Because essentially, like, whatever we perceive as a stressor is, is something that we need to mobilize energy resources for. So if, if the body sort of determines that we don't have enough resources to deal with a particular situation, then we will start to release those stress hormones. And so <clears throat> if someone is in a chronic, I mean, let's say you, you come up against a tiger in, in the wild. I mean, you are naturally, you're going to release cortisol, you're going to release adrenaline, and you're going to mobilize energy to go to where it's needed the most. And that's away from the internal organs that's to the brain and that's to uh, the muscles because you're either going to want to fight or you're going to want to run. Um, mm-hmm. But when this happens chronically, so in our modern life, we don't need to fight tigers. And quite often we're not in life-threatening situations. Um, but if someone, if, if someone's body, if they, if, if, they, if they basically don't have access to sufficient energy, uh, which could be... Uh, um, for many reasons, but if their energy production and their energy utilization is not up to scratch, oh, oh cut out again. Him again. Did I cut out again? Yeah, okay, yeah, we back. You, back. We heard you say up <laughs> yeah. to scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, if they've got poor thyroid function, if they've got poor mitochondrial metabolism. If anything is wrong with their metabolism, then any difficult situation that they come across, they are going to release those stress hormones because, quite frankly, they are not going to have the available energy to deal with anything. So this is how things can differ between many different people. And this is just sort of dependent on how how well their body is working at the time. Um, and so what can happen is if this happens chronically and you start continually, um, you know, re- you're releasing cortisol and adrenaline on a daily basis, um, then, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the physiology, but basically what this does is it further suppresses the body's ability to, to take energy from food and to be able to produce energy that's usable. Um, and this is actually known as the stress metabolism it's exactly the same thing as cancer. Hmm. Huh. Or even so, Elliot, something you... like adrenal fatigue, right? Yeah, I would think so. Sorry, I, I cut off again. <laughs> yeah, what, what you, uh... My connection my connection's yeah. really bad. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, what, do you, what do you mean it's the exact same thing as cancer? Is it the same response that creates cancer? What I'm saying is that basically um, the stress metabolism, which is reliant on cortisol and adrenaline, basically cortisol breaks down muscle tissue to release glucose, okay? Mm-hmm. And adrenaline breaks down fat tissue to release free fatty acids. Now, there's something called the Randall cycle, which basically means that the mitochondria... Oh, no. I want to hear this. Cut thing. off again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. Sorry, I hear what you're saying. Back up to right. mitochondria. So the Randall cycle basically means that the cell can't use en- uh, energy from fat and glucose at the same time. So it has to mm. choose between burning fat and burning sugar. Okay, right. so when you release when you release cortisol and adrenaline, it breaks down the muscle tissue, which provides sugar, and it breaks down the fat tissue to provide fat. Now, the problem is you can't burn these at the same time. 
So what happens is you start burning fat. Now, this doesn't matter whether you're on a ketogenic diet or not. You will burn fat. But at the, at the same time, you'll burn sugar. But uh, the type of burning of sugar is called glycolysis. So it's a really base level, primitive level of metabolism. Now, this is as a short-term response, but this produces a lot of lactic acid. Um, now, basically, when this happens chronically, the buildup of lactic acid basically suppresses the enzymes which allow um, undergo full mitochondrial respiration. And this is basically defined as Warburg metabolism. This is cancer. So okay. every single type of cancer that you see basically features enhanced glycolysis. So it's, it's when the, the cell can no longer burn uh, glucose or fat for energy. So it relies yeah. on this base level metabolism. I don't want to go too deep into details on it because it's really quite complex. Sure. But basically what I'm trying to say is that chronically when there, or, or basically when there is a, a lack of energy, then any stressful situation you are go going to release stress hormones. And when this happens chronically, then what is going to happen is you are going to get this buildup of lactic acid. And this can essentially turn into any known pathology that we see today. So if you look at any kind of pathology, you see that you have um, a buildup of lactic acid and, and lower mitochondrial respiration. So what... Basically, it, it just means that chronically this stress state is going to lead to more stress and is essentially going to lead to illness. And that's yeah. that's the point I'm trying to get across. I'm sorry, my sure. connection's really bad and I can't really hear no, it. It's all right. That's fascinating. So, I mean, I guess it, it could sound like a uh, like a uh, tinfoil hat kind of thing to say. You know, we, we've landed upon the, the cause of all disease, uh, you know, but I, I not saying that I'm saying it's a giant contributor, like our high stress lifestyle. I mean, that's why we mm -hmm. see more and more of these, uh, you know, diseases of modernity, right? Because we're stressed chronically. Hey, it looks like Elliot, folks, sorry to interrupt you. It looks like we oh. may have a caller. So hey, hello. Uh, we have hello. Adam on the line. Hello. Can you hear me? Hey, Adam. Yeah. Hey, yeah, how's it going, everybody? We can hear you. Cool. Good. How are you? Doing good. Um, I was listening to the show, and you know, y'all kept talking about uh, what it might be like for martial artists, and so I thought I'd call in and give my perspective. If that works for you guys. Yeah. Cool. So one of the things that uh, we would do in uh, our martial arts training is we would purposefully uh, overload ourselves if that makes sense. So like, you know, you'd be working with somebody and then they would put a lot of pressure on you uh, mm -hmm. while you're trying to practice cer certain techniques. And what that does is that does do like a minor overload of the amygdala. So, you know, you start <laughs> to freak out a little bit and then, you know, you, you calm it down a little bit. And, you know, so that way the brain gets to cool down some and you're not so stressed. And so you kind of go back and forth with that. And then what ends up happening is that, you know, when you first start using a technique with somebody, um, you know, it can be very stressful if they're putting a lot of pressure on you. Um, but once you start getting used to that kind of pressure, then when you get into that situation again, you're like, oh, this is nothing. 
So it's kind of like training the amygdala in a way to kind of like train you to deal with a situation where normally you would be totally hijacked. Um, it kind of yeah. puts you in that, that situation. So it's kind of training you to kind of get a better perspective on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, like for mm-hmm. my black belt, um, what we did was we had multiple opponents attacking you uh, and you had to go full speed with multiple opponents using sticks and knives and whatnot. And, you know, you're, you don't just walk in off the street, you know, and, and uh, fight off multiple opponents with sticks and knives. You know, you have to build yourself up to that. Sure. Um, so that was just something uh, that I wanted to mention. And then also it got me thinking about, um, you know, certain people recommend, you know, do something you fear every day. So if you are constantly putting yourself in a safe situation, you know, where it's something that you're afraid of, you know, say it's uh, like calling into the show or Mm. uh, talking in front of a lot of people, you know, the more that you get yourself into these uncomfortable situations, it can, uh, you can reorient yourself to what's actually going on. So it's not just this overwhelming fear response, um, but you're actually better able to see what's actually going on. And it's like, oh, this isn't as bad as bad as I thought it was. Mm. Essentially, it's so like building the muscle in the brain. Yeah. Neuroplasticity. Yeah, exactly. Would you say then you use that to sharpen your your viewpoint, to sharpen your perspective? I think you could say that. I guess what I was thinking is like, since you, I mean, you have a black belt, so you're obviously intimately familiar with, you know, a stress response and what that's like. So that's why I was curious, like, uh, um, if we could talk for a little while about the positive effects of the amygdala, like it's not just something that you need to be afraid of. Like it's yeah. this you know, dangerous, you know, injection of, of, uh, stress hormones, but that it can actually be utilized. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, it's part of the brain. It's part of the, you know, how the brain functions and everything. And so it's using it to your advantage, you know, like y'all were talking about earlier when the guy just jumped into the river to save the child, you know, it has a specific purpose and you can train it um, to recognize a lot of information. And then that way, when you get into different situations, you know, you don't uh, go into the immediate like, Oh, he shirt fronted me. Now I've got to punch him in the face. (laughs) Wild. Well, like, uh, have, uh, Adam, out of curiosity, have you ever had a situation in which you feel like even with your training, you lost control for a moment? And what was that like if that happened? Um, do you mean like a physical altercation or just like generally? I guess just, just generally, yeah. Like you lose it generally and then you're like, oh, man, I'm, I, I've got a black belt. I shouldn't be losing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's times when the, when the ego gets in the way and you forget yourself. And so the automatic emotional reaction kind of plays up. And, you know, I've had that happen sometimes where I have to, you know, after the fact, look at it and be like, okay, yeah, that was completely uncalled for. Um, (laughs) Or that was, that was an unnecessary response or something like that. Um, Sure. I think so that's I part like of emotional. that's part of the emotional intelligence part growing that ability mm-hmm. to admit yeah. when you've made a mistake. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So it, I don't know that it's necessarily like, I mean, I've known a lot of martial artists and some of them are actually like, you know, some of the nicest people. Uh, yeah. Some of them are total, you know, jerks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's not like a, I guess in some respects you can say that uh, doing, putting yourself into these stressful situations and being able to control your emotional reactions Um, you know, like when we were training for, for our black belt test, you know, we had to, uh, learn how to control, uh, the fear response and, and feeling overwhelmed, learning to control that can, uh, transfer over into real life situations. Um, you just have to be able to, I guess, keep up with it. And then, um, at the same time, it's, it's also like a a mental component. So, adding in meditation or Qigong or Tai Chi or something like that to, you know, again, give you some kind of uh, mindfulness and emotional control. It's, sure. it's kind of, you know, multiple avenues there. Well, that kind of control doesn't necessarily imply, you know, a, a good empathetic person, I suppose. Cause even somebody who's like a jerk uh, that you mentioned, you know, would, if, if they're trained in how to fight, they would know how to control their stress response while they're fighting because they want to win. It doesn't mean they're a nice person, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It doesn't make you a good person just because you can, you know, know how to punch people in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds totally counterintuitive, but, uh, right. (laughs) I guess what I was curious about, uh, the reason I brought up that question is that like this, uh, you know, the amygdala hijack is, I think not necessarily something you can master to the point where it never happens. Maybe, you know, I'm sure there are some people like that throughout the world that are so even keel that they just don't, that it doesn't happen to them or they've learned how not to. But, um, even in your case, which, you know, I'm not trying to like fluff you up too much, but black belt, it's a high level of training. So you've got a lot of experience and you still run into these situations where you can be, you know, hijacked and have an irrational response. Yeah. And one of the, other things that I've, I've noticed in myself sometimes if I'm not keeping my ego in check is, you know, somebody like somebody does something and I get the immediate emotional response of like, you know, I'm pissed off. So somebody does something or says something and it like ticks me off a little bit. Uh, I find sometimes that my mind just goes to where like, you know, like, you know, let's step outside and we'll (laughs) (laughs) sure. Well, I think that's, 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 you know, that's probably partly instinctual and partly ego. Like, you know, whatever you're trying, you're trying to protect something, even if it's just yourself, there's like a protection instinct that kicks in. Um, and then of course the, you know, like the ego part, you know, you, you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to be insulted. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, like now that I know how to handle myself in a physical altercation, when somebody does try to be like confrontational with me, I can just take a step back and, be like, you know, you know, this doesn't phase me. Uh, I'm not afraid because I know I can handle myself. So I'm just going to keep calm and try and resolve the situation peacefully because I don't yeah. want to, you know, have to, you know, use what I've learned. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, owning a handgun, you know, ideally you have this thing, this tool that you really never want to use. Yep. But it's the training that is the benefit, you know, and the result, like the mental acuity that comes from that. 
Yeah, it's the self-confidence. It's the ability to learn how to uh, uh, handle yourself and keep calm in a stressful situation. That's what's really important. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think, like, because when I think back, I've only been involved in a physical altercation, uh, geez, maybe twice in the last, like, 15 years. So do you find that having the training that you have or being around that, like puts you in situations where that's more likely. I don't mean like in the dojo. I mean, just like in your everyday life. Uh, I wouldn't say so. Like I, you know, yeah. I've trained for a number of years. Um, and well, actually, uh, I think you said it earlier, um, where, you know, sometimes the, the best response is, or like the best way to win a fight is to not fight at all. Um, and mm -hmm. so, there's there's times like when I was still um, like deep into that kind of world um, where if I would go out with some of my martial arts friends, like we would purposely situate ourselves close to the door or we would, you know, purposely not try and talk to anybody who was really drunk or uh, something like that. So I would say it's actually putting it, it gives you a perspective of, you know, what, what's actually dangerous, what the actual uh, things to look out for are, and so you can avoid it better. Sure. Interesting. Essentially, yeah, it's like cool. situational awareness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and well, being, you would being have present to be. aware enough of your surroundings to know when there's a threat or not. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. I think you, you would have to be more more aware of that uh, also because isn't the case that if you have, I know this is the case with military, especially like special forces, but I think anybody in the military, if they get into a fight and they end up killing somebody, it's uh, assault with a deadly weapon. Or I don't even think it has to result in death. I think like if they get into a fight and they seriously injure somebody to a point where there's charges brought up, it can be assault yeah. with a deadly weapon because of their training. Uh, yeah, is that the same with the training yeah. you have? Yeah. It is. Uh, if it ever came out, um, you know, if pre if charges were pressed against me, uh, I would be held to a higher standard than the average person on the street just because I am trained. Um, sure. So it doesn't matter what it is, if it's hand to hand combat or, if you know, I was able to pick up, you know, something um, like a stick or an umbrella or a, even a pen or something like that. And I and I hurt somebody. Uh, I would be held to a higher standard uh, and be punished more severely because of my training. You know, like because I have this training, I should be able to control myself better. Sure. So it's not just like a nice side effect. It's like you're required, you know, to have that yeah. control. Yeah. It's, it's not something that's like explicitly stated in a lot of things. Um, you know, you don't walk into the dojo and they give you this, like sheet of paper. It's like, okay, so here's the legal ramifications of what you're learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it is, it is a thing where, uh, you know, like you were saying with, with the special forces people, if you do, uh, and it end up getting into a physical altercation, then there is legal ramifications. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why you have to keep, uh, yourself in check, you know, keep mm -hmm. the emotions and the ego in check. Uh, if you're in a stressful environment, because, you know, if you just, if you automatically react, 
um, it can it can be very bad. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, Adam, thanks for calling in. That was awesome. It was really yeah, enlightening. Sure. Yeah. 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 Appreciate thanks it. for taking my call. Yeah. Cool. All right, y'all. Uh, appreciate y'all letting me throw in my two cents. So I'm going to keep listening. Great show. Cool. Thanks again. Bye. Have a good day. Thanks, Adam. Cool. Well, we, uh, um, I wanted to touch on one of the other articles that we were looking at, uh, uh, that helping others can protect you from the stress of getting lost in your own problems. This is kind of an interesting one. And I think it, it ties directly into the, the stress hormones and the, the cortisol response. Um, that uh, research suggests that when you help other people, and this is not just altruism, but it, you know, it's in general, helping other people actually reduces the chance of you uh, experiencing chronic stress. And they found in these studies that um, people who were helpful, you know, their stress hormones went down, and specifically people who were, you know, for the purpose of the study, selfish and did not help anybody. Uh, especially in like extreme situations, their stress went way up, like it skyrocketed. So, and they say in this article, I think it's funny that, you know, we have no idea why this happens. So (laughs) I get, I guess like, you know, from a scientific study point of view, you have to do that. But I I think it's interesting to speculate about that, you know, humanity as a whole, uh, well, I guess the, the planet overall, but I was thinking humans specifically can be seen as kind of like a connected network, like a a larger organism. Mm -hmm in a way. And that when you are connected to that network and you're contributing, so it's not just about helping right in, in quotes, it's about um, the exchange of energy. So if you're contributing uh, and then you receive an equal exchange of energy and then you contribute back and you keep doing this and you create this flow through the network of people um, that that allows, how do I say this? Uh, That allows like optimization of your mind and your body whatever, whatever that comes around to be. So, you know, you hear stories about like people who have cancer and then they get like just hardcore involved in, um, charity or building homes or things like that. And they go into remission. Um, you know, the anecdotal evidence, of course, but there's a lot of different stories like that where you see physical conditions reversed by people just getting more involved in the network of humanity. So I think personally, I think that's what it has to do with. It's something like, I can't claim to like be able to explain it, but something about that connection basically says it's like the universe saying, okay, you are interested in being a part of what this is that's going on here. And so as a result, uh, you will be more, you know, optimal so that you can contribute better. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's that's, interesting that's you talk about thing. that because Goldman in his book talks about mirror neurons. <clears throat> so when you're, um, when you're in a calm and collected state, how you can influence others. And it, it makes me think of, you know, say, um, modeling behavior for children. So in his book, he talks a lot about the importance of teaching emotional intelligence to children and how when you're dealing with children, that if you're in a calm and collected state, that you can be essentially a model for that type of behavior. And um, when you lose it, you know, the, then the reaction is going to be the same. So if you work in a stressful environment or you're in a stressful situation, say you're in a city and something happens and everyone is 
essentially having amygdala hijack. If you can remain calm and assess your situation and the awareness around you, then maybe you can have an effect on others. And he talked about Mm -hmm. one particular study they did with a Buddhist monk, and they paired him up with a professor of some college who was known to be really brash and and inconsiderate and opinionated and egotistical, and they sat them down together to have a conversation. And the professor was getting really annoyed and really worked up, and the Buddhist monk just kept talking. And by the end of the, the study or the time they were spending together, the professor had totally switched his attitude and was very enjoyable to speak with and didn't want to actually end the study at that time, wanted to keep talking to the Buddhist monk. And and it just, for me, kind of sent that message home that if you can essentially be an anchor in a situation when everything is kind of out of control around you, maybe you can mirror that behavior to others. What do you guys think? Mm. I think that makes total sense. Yeah. I've seen mm-hmm. that example many times in a situation where you're not living, you know, in the house, although that too, but when you're uh, just kind of directly daily involved with a group of friends, that if one person is stressed out, the other person will be so even that you're like, how are you doing that right now? And then if that person gets stressed out, it, it, the other person evens out. So it's like there's mm-hmm. always, uh, depending, you know, or uh, what I mean to say is kind of independent of people's nature. It seems that when one person goes off the rails, the other one stays on kind of just as a as a default, like as a function of, you know, controlling the situation. Hmm. So I think that that it really makes sense that you your behavior affects others and helps to bring them back down to level. Uh, And I think that we that's even like sort of an instinctual response for us is to balance Hmm. out a communal situation. Well, it's like with dogs too. I mean, you know, any Caesar Milan fans know that uh, <laughs> when you uh, when you're freaking out, your dog is freaking out, and when you're not, then they're usually pretty calm. Um, and when two people meet with dogs, uh, if they are wary of each other and if they're afraid that their dogs are going to fight, and so they're kind of holding the dogs back and they're not, you know, they're kind of like standoffish, the dogs get nervous, and then oftentimes they actually do end up fighting because of the energy that the owners injected into the situation. But if they come up, the owners come up and like shake hands are friendly with each other. Don't restrain their dogs in certain situations, of course, um, that m- most likely they, the dogs are then relaxed and they interact fine. Yeah. We talked <laughs> about you know, that in the, the gift of fear show about, um, dogs and how, um, you know, the woman said, oh, my dog didn't like the contractor. And the author of The Gift of Fear said, no, actually, you didn't like the contractor and your dog was just yeah. picking up on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, of course, within reason, like, you wouldn't want to just let a pit bull up to a Pomeranian. And just remain totally cool and calm. Yeah, that would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well uh, I think we're, oh, go ahead. Please. Oh, I was just going to say um, some strategies. So in, in our description, we talked about strategies for surviving the signs of the times. Either mm-hmm. of you want to share a strategy that you employ regularly <laughs> to get you through the day to uh, avoid the amygdala hijack? 
I find a, a repeated, re- repeatedly reminding myself how not big a deal things are helps. <laughs> mm. uh, it's hard yeah. to do. And of course, it doesn't work all the time, but I do have to constantly do this is not a big deal. Okay, it's money. Okay, yeah, it's a hundred bucks. That's a lot to me right now, but it's not a big deal, you know. And like, mm. you just got to keep reminding yourself that it, it goes on, you know. And uh, you know, to, the, to be frank, the universe doesn't give a crap about you. It's not, you know, like the, the thing that you feel all weird and knotted up about. Like nobody's, you're probably not even going to remember that happened. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, obviously it's good to hone your memory, but I'm saying, I find that doing that kind of daily reminder uh, is really helpful and that uh, helps to reduce stress. When I am stressed out, I can go back to that place. And I'm not like, I'm not saying it's, you know, like a hippie kind of like, Oh, whatever kind of thing. <laughs> like, you don't, it's not that you don't deal with the situation. You just realize that it's not as, uh, it doesn't need to be stressful. That's mm. what I'm saying. I think that kind of gets into, um, self-awareness to a certain extent. Um, there was one article that we looked at for this one called uh, how to avoid the amygdala hijack. And one of the, uh, the points that they make is, is that self-awareness can be very helpful. And, uh, when the amygdala is firing up and, and detecting threats, uh, one thing that you can do to kind of bring the prefrontal cortex into the situation to try and assess things from a little bit more objective point of view is to ask yourself some questions so the ones that they give um, are like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I want now? How am I getting in my way? And what do I need to do differently now? And it's kind of like by asking yourself those questions, you're kind of getting out of that reactionary emotional state and kind of bringing more um, you know, thought process into it, more, more kind of higher thinking um, so that you can kind of step back a little bit. I mean, Erica, it's like you were saying, um, earlier as well as being able to kind of step back and kind of take take things from a more um, logical and objective perspective, and I think that that's that's one pretty good way of of uh, of kind of dealing with these situations. And I think if you are someone who is prone to these these amygdala hijacks, uh, practicing self awareness in some way. I mentioned meditation before, or yoga, or something like that. I think is a, probably a good idea because it just kind of like creates that space for you to actually give you a moment where you can count to five, where you can like kind of ask yourself these questions to kind of um, pull you out of that reactionary state. Exactly. Some of the other things in that article um, were smell essential oils. And, uh, you know, that may sound a little bit out there. But for some people, the the olfactory, you know, the scent, smelling something can calm you down, whether it's lavender or citrus. Um, meditation was another one. Uh, also, sound, singing and humming, laughing, which we talked about on a previous show. Sometimes I find it, in a stressful situation, I just start to laugh, and it may be inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it it also kind of uh, breaks that intensity of the moment and gives you a good opportunity to do just exactly what Doug said. Like, I probably shouldn't laugh as my boss is, you know, calling me out on my behavior, but at least I'm not going to um, punch my boss in the face. You know, I wouldn't do something mm-hmm. like that. You know? <laughs> or, or send that email that may get you fired, right? Yeah. And and the sound thing yeah. too, you know, we are very sensitive beings, I think, 
And um, I've noticed being in places where music is really loud and it, it kind of amplifies the intensity, and we've talked about this on a previous show as well, of everyone. And so maybe putting on some sort of music or humming to yourself the the Lord's Prayer or anything that can kind of slow that intensity down and give you that mm-hmm. five-second warning to not do something that you may regret later. Because that seems to be um, one of the things about the amygdala hijack is you react and then all of a sudden you feel terrible about what you've done or said or how you've acted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, activating, I mean, some of those you mentioned, Erica, are good ways of activating the vagus nerve as well. And uh, the vagus nerve, I mean, we've talked about this a number of times on the show, but uh, it's kind of the, the activating that nerve will, will take you from a sympathetic nervous state to a parasympathetic one, which is the more calm, relaxed, alert uh, sort of state of mind. So there's lots of different things you can do to stimulate your vagus nerve. I mean, you can stick your face into a bowl of cold water, um, you can, uh, but, but I mean, you were mentioning like humming and singing, probably laughter as well. All those things will stimulate the vagus nerve. Um, if anybody is interested in the, the breathing, uh, program that we promote, Eru Uolis, um, that, uh, teaches a, a breathing technique called pipe breathing, which is excellent for stimulating the vagus nerve. So I know, um, you know, when I was I, in the past, when I've been in stressful situations and was able to kind of remove myself from it to get myself kind of calmed down and centered, I would just go kind of go to the bathroom and do some pipe breathing, or someplace private. So there's there's a, a couple of different things that you can do there. Sure, I suppose you don't want to do that right in front of somebody while you're talking to them. Right? You start going. <laughs> Might be kind of odd. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you guys say that because you know I've raised kids and they can really hijack your amygdala in a lot of ways and uh (laughs) Mm -hmm. it used to happen a lot in the car you know as they're fighting or yelling or listening to their loud music or whatever it is and i would start doing the pipe breathing and they'd look at me and they'd go oh mom's getting mad you know they knew instantly Mm -hmm. when i was doing the the pipe breathing (laughs) that that it was kind of a a signal you guys are getting on my last nerve. <laughs> You're like, uh, what's his name? Who is the Hulk? Like when he starts to turn. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find too, like, um, there's two techniques that uh, uh, a friend of mine kind of like, I guess, came up with, although they're not new necessarily, just these terms, uh, going 180. Um, I know that that's a common term, but specifically applied to when you feel like you don't want to do something, um, say you should exercise like because of your lifestyle, like me, like, cause I work at a computer, so I need to exercise. But a lot of times when I have to do it, I'm like, oh, I'm grumble, you know, I don't want to do this, but just cr- cultivating the mechanism that allows you to go 180 on that and do something that you don't want to do that strengthens over time. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you begin to develop a higher distress tolerance. That's one of the things Nora Gaudis talks about is distress tolerance. And that, uh, you know, when you develop a higher distress tolerance, you're just more effective overall. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, <clears throat> humbling yourself on purpose can, can have a good effect with that too. Um, so essentially if you start to notice like, oh, I really feel right about this. Like I'm right. They're wrong. I know it, you know, 
and I find even if I am right in those situations, that is a trigger for me to kind of back up and go, okay, I'm starting to get a little puffed up. You know, I'm starting to be kind of egotistical and that's when my emotions will start to kind of run rampant, but forcing yourself into a state of humility. Uh, and even if you're grumpy about it, that's fine. Just deal with it. You know, and that, that also strengthens that ability to, to handle stress, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the stuff Elliot talked about was fascinating because it's true when you have lack of sleep, when you've been eating poorly, when you've been traveling, you're in a new environment, all these different things, you become worn down and exhausted and you're triggered easy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And even just saying, I'm in a bad mood, be best to just leave me alone. You know, kind of giving that warning. Yeah. Well, I think we got some good techniques here. Um, let's uh, let's go to the pet health segment for today. We we'll shift gears a little bit. Um, Zoya has got a, uh, a clip for us, but fun facts about cockroaches. Ugh. So let's oh. <laughs> I know. think about amygdala response. It'll be interesting. Right, we'll Some fun facts. <laughs> we'll they're gonna the, tell uh, us they really are friends. <laughs> and they're gonna save us. Okay. Oh. <laughs> There's one structure Oops, in sorry. the midbrain. Wrong. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is going to be a little bit different. Cats and dogs, they are our faithful companions and the most popular pets all around the world. But there are also other creatures who follow our lives and spend their time nearby us. It's just that most of the time we don't like their companionship very much. I'm talking about cockroaches, taracani, or la cucaracha. Well, considering the almost universal dislike, It may surprise you to learn that the dislike is mutual, as cockroaches really don't like to touch humans. In fact, there are claims that when the cockroach is touching a human, they immediately run away and clean themselves. Pizza for human! Another interesting and perhaps disturbing fact is that scientists have been observing a gradual disappearance uh, of cockroaches in the cities. They either move into the basements or out of the city completely. There are several possible theories, but one of the main ones is that electromagnetic noise, like for example Wi-Fi, that surrounds us, interferes with their, survival, with their optimal survival. So, just think for a second, cockroaches are considered to be one of the most resilient creatures that supposedly can survive even a nuclear war. If so, if they are finding it hard to live in such environment, what does it say about our own chances? Food for thought. In any case, here is a recording of additional fun facts about cockroaches. Enjoy. If a cockroach walks by you right now, would you step on it? If so, I get it, but you should know cockroaches are cooler than you might think. Hey guys, what's up? I'm Sapna here at D News. 
Today we're answering a question that came from our subreddit page r slash dnews. The user SemiHC wants to know if cockroaches have any benefit to nature. Well, yes, they do, Semi. Despite their bad reputation, most roaches play an important role in the natural world, and we humans may even be able to learn a thing or two from those resilient, creepy creatures. I know it's tough to see cockroaches as anything but awful, and no matter what we do to try and get rid of them, they often outsmart us. For example, cockroaches eat pretty much anything. Your leftover steak, the soap scum in your bathtub, even the glue on an envelope, which is actually pretty incredible. Roach poison takes advantage of that and tastes sweet to the little buggers. They eat it and die. But according to a recent study in the journal Science, some cockroaches evolved new body chemistry, so the poison no longer tastes good, thus no snack and no death. Most people think of cockroaches as household pests, but there are actually about 4,500 different species of cockroaches around the world, and less than 1% of them are the freaky ones that scatter when we turn on the lights. Those in our homes are often covered in bacteria and fecal matter. It sticks to them, they ingest it and defecate everywhere. And proteins in their feces, saliva and eggs are one of the biggest causes of allergies and asthma for people living in urban environments. I know it's gross. And maybe that's more than you wanted to know about cockroach feces, but beyond the cities where we live, it gets better. Cockroach poop is actually beneficial to the environment. It plays a role in the Earth's nitrogen cycle. Forest roaches consume decaying organic matter and release its nitrogen back into the soil through their feces, so it can be used again by plants. Most cockroaches, 99.7% of them, live far away from people, mostly in wooded areas, and they actually do some good in the world. In some environments, they serve as pollinators for flowers. And by consuming the decaying vegetation, the microbes inside their gut break down plant materials that are often indigestible by most mammals, which is why some experts call cockroaches nature's janitors or decomposers. Now, roaches are also an important source of food for some species, like centipedes, lizards, and birds. And at least one species of wasp couldn't live without the cockroach. I think this is really cool. So the parasitic emerald wasp stings a cockroach and injects venom into a specific part of its brain, which blocks voluntary movement. The wasp then leads this zombie roach back to its burrow, lays an egg on it, and when that egg hatches, the larva eats the roach from the inside out and emerges as a mature wasp. I know it's disgusting, but isn't that awesome? Cockroaches can help humans too, by the way, because they survive in the filthiest of conditions. Their central nervous system produces natural antibiotics. We found that their natural defenses work even against antibiotic-resistant bacteria, like Staph aureus, also known as MRSA. And scientists at Harvard's Biorobotics Laboratory are studying the legs of cockroaches, too. Cockroach legs are not only springy and flexible, but they also work together seamlessly so the insect can run at really fast speeds on uneven ground. By copying those evolutionary advantages, scientists hope to design new prosthetics and mechanical hands. So there you go, Semi-HC. We love your question. And yes, cockroaches really do play an important role in our ecosystem. And get this. Engineers are actually turning roaches into robots. You can see how and why in this video. The remote control doesn't tap into the brain per se because a cockroach doesn't navigate with eyes in the same way we do, but it uses its antennae to feel for the walls or their predators. This package stimulates the nerves in their antennae so the roach thinks that there's a wall coming or harm and it causes it to turn the direction the controller wants. So what do you think about cockroaches now? Tell us down in the comments section down below and don't forget to click subscribe. And if you have any other questions, let us know on our subreddit page at r slash dnews. Thanks for watching.
So those goats don't have any roaches next to them? <laughs> oh, that was a stretch. I was, I was wondering how you're going to tie that one in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It didn't work very well. <laughs> better, better look next time. I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'd like to thank everybody for listening today. Thanks for our chatters uh, or to our chatters for participating. We had a pretty busy chat room today, so that was awesome. Um, mm-hmm. uh, be sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. And if you're not in the Eastern time zone in the U.S., you can go to radio.sot.net. The local airtime will be shown there uh, if you check that out on Sunday. Um so that's it. I guess we'll uh, we'll be back next week. Yes. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day and weekend. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye.